For a recent birthday, one of my daughters treated me to a food and wine matching experience at Denby's Vineyard near Dorking in Surrey, one of the UK's largest wine estates covering over 260 acres from which it produces sparkling and still wines, both red and white. And naturally, I purchased some bottles to enjoy at home. The quality was comparable to wines that I've enjoyed from most other wine-growing nations which prompted me to look more closely at a crop which is attracting more and more landowners as climate change is modifying the wine landscape in the UK, which is now much nearer the climatic conditions found around the Champagne region of France. I'm Chris Biddle. Thank you for joining me, and this is episode 84 of Inside AgriTurf. Now, yes, we talk about agriculture, and we talk about horticulture, and now perhaps we should increasingly talk about viticulture, as vineyards spring up across the British landscape, and the quality of home-produced wines not only improves year on year, but they are also scooping top international awards. So to discuss the growth of wine production in the UK, I'm joined by two wine aficionados who also conveniently have close links with BAGMA, the British Agricultural and Garden Machinery Association. Chris Boiling is the editor of the association's house magazine, The BAGMA Bulletin, but also a respected wine journalist, wine traveller and indeed wine maker. Ian Beecher-Jones was the Director General of BAGMA for 12 years from 1994 to 2006 before setting up his own agricultural consultancy. In 2017, he and his wife Tess established Jojo's Vineyard near Henley-on-Thames and in September this year released their first batch of white wine. So Chris and Ian, welcome. Now, how did you both get started on your wine journeys? Uh, perhaps Chris first. I bought a vineyard in Slovenia. As um, one does. <laughs> now, I'd been a writer all my life and sort of got to the age of 50 when I realised I hadn't put anything away for the future. So the kids had gone off to university. I thought, ah, I'll buy a property abroad. And the one I selected um, came with 550 vines, just a, a very small wine garden. But it sort of got me into it. This was 13 years ago. And the neighbours showed me what to do. And I thought, no, I want to do it better. So I took a, a degree course at Plumpton, four years part time, and switched from writing about business uh, topics to writing about wine. And Ian, um, as far as you're concerned, I know you obviously from your time um, heading up BAGMA, which seems an age ago now, um, and you've been involved in the agricultural technology, shall I say, market. With you, why a vineyard? Uh, sometimes, Chris, we wonder ourselves why a vineyard, but um, I guess it comes down to the fact that uh, we like wine and we love wine. And uh, the, our journey started um, in uh, well, about six years ago. Um, seven years ago and we were looking to work out what to do yeah we we were approaching 50 and going right what are we going to do with the rest of our lives we haven't got kids and so it was a case of you can either sort of put your feet up and uh, enjoy the rest of your life on the slippery slope downhill or embark on a challenge and so we 
uh, we did the latter. Uh, we found a little bit of ground in the village that uh, that we live in in uh, in Russell's Water, and um, weren't quite sure what we were going to do with it when we bought it. And uh, yeah, th- there's a few vineyards around us, and one conversation led to another. And uh, rather than have horses on the uh, the nine acre site, we planted nine thousand vines. So it was quite a uh, yeah, quite a, quite a change, but uh, a very enjoyable change. Well, it sounds like two midlife crises. <laughs> uh, um, I think that's very true. If that's the plural. Well, if I come back to you, uh, Chris, uh, I've been reading uh, about your project this year, which I think you you, you titled Harvest uh, 22, which seemed to take you all over not only to the world, because indeed when I phoned you to ask you to appear on this program, a rather sleepy uh, Chris answered the phone from Mendoza in Argentina, where you were presumably tasting some rather splendid wines. Yeah, I was. I, I had this um, idea to sort of make some wine in other places because my vineyard is too small and I'm not there enough to really look after the grapes. I thought I'd team up with winemakers and viticulturists around the world and do something interesting and it just snowballed and I ended up making eight wines in four countries in one vintage so that's um, Slovenia, Hungary, Austria and Georgia and fortunately with my other um, part of the job I was able to go to um, Mendoza uh, for the world's best vineyards um, an annual listing of the 50 best vineyards in the world. Indeed, and, and and Argentina presumably is a very good venue f- for that because uh, man, many of us love Argentinian Malbecs, for instance, and and, and so on. And uh, that presumably, this has given you a lot of uh, copy to write about um, all your experiences in winemaking during this year, has it? Yeah, that was the idea. I wanted to sort of write from the perspective of actually doing it. So I turned up I had a rough idea of what I wanted to do and then I was uh, led by the winemakers as to what was actually achievable I mean in Slovenia I wanted to make a skin contact ferment but when we uh, turned up there the grapes weren't healthy enough for that so we did a a co-fermentation with two relatively unknown grape varieties Lashki Rislin and uh, Tremina. What are the issues I'd like to to chat to you both about is it's the growth of uh, uk viticulture because there does seem to be uh, vineyards spring springing up all, all over the place is climate change uh, a factor in in the growth of wine growing in in the uk uh, chris for a start yeah i think it has led to um, better quality wine being produced here i mean we have been producing wine Back in Roman times, there were vineyards here. But in the 1960s and 70s, people had uh, a go at planting vineyards. The quality wasn't so good. But since the 1990s and, you know, the link with planting uh, champagne varieties and making a sparkling wine, you know, we've got a good reputation for that now. And I think in the last five years, I think, I saw a figure with um, a yeah, 70% increase in the area under vines in the UK. You know, um, 1.6 million vines planted in 2018, 3.2 million in 2019, and 1.4 million vines in 2020 in England and Wales. So it is obviously a growing market. And, and uh, 
Ian, uh, you you operate in a number of areas of of agritech and and so on. Is do, do you find viticulture gaining interest amongst some of the the, the farmers, for instance, that you talk to landowners? Yes, the as as Chris was mentioning, there has been a, a dramatic increase um, in in the, in the viticulture um, area across the country. Where when we planted in twenty nineteen, uh, our two point two hectares was above average size of a UK vineyard. Um, we're now um, significantly under that um, just because of the the size that have been planted. Um, and I'm also hearing um, from people um, within the business that it's a part of farm diversification as well, certainly on um, family farms where we're seeing um, families coming back together. Sons and daughters have been off to uh, to university. Um, maybe the sons are wanting to do the farm. The daughter's going, right, what am I going to do? I want to still be here. And um, they're setting up the vineyard and doing the vineyard. And we've got a, a neighbour just down the road who's doing that. And I know uh, two others where that has has worked in really well so rather than um families disappearing off the the farming business they're actually coming back together which is i think really exciting where um families aren't uh, aren't being split up and farms aren't being split up for from a um from a, a family perspective and how do you split the businesses up they're investing that money um into into viticulture and some of them have got their own wineries other others are just making it um growing grapes and selling it into the trade where um there's there's huge demand for the different styles uh, of, of wine that are being made now and i find that really encouraging that this uh, viticulture is offering family farms and family businesses this opportunity Indeed, and, and perhaps it might be said that um, uh, growing grapes and producing wine is slightly more attractive to the younger generation than growing beetroot, for argument's sake, or, or whatever. How is the quality compared with many of the wines that we uh, we know from Europe, particularly, and the Americas, Australia, and New Zealand, and so on? Uh, Chris, how, how, how is the quality? Is it is it of a comparable quality, and are we producing sort of distinctive wines here as opposed to copycat wines uh, from the rest of the world? I think as we grow in confidence and as more and more wine producers come out of places like Plumpton, I think they've got the confidence to have their own style. I think we started off sort of mimicking champagne because we were growing the same grapes. We they said we had the same type of soil and similar climate to. Uh, champagne back in the 1980s um, but I think we've got our own style now and certainly the sparkling wines are good value I was at a comparative tasting of, of um, sparkling wines from around the world and you know the very top champagnes are expensive and are probably better but I think you know in the 35 price point I think it easily compared with champagnes of around £60. So, no, I think on the sparkling wine front, we have excellent quality and, you know, really good winemakers as well. And I think now we're starting to see some still wines that are really good, you know, either Chardonnay or Pinot Noir still wines, and some of um, a great variety that is fairly unique to the UK in, in quality terms, Bacchus. And that shows real potential as well. It's sort of, you know, a bit similar to um, to New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. That's 
it's, it's not quite like that, but people have compared it to that. And I think, you know, those type of grapes show great price too. Indeed. In the right hands. Yeah. Uh, and presumably there's a lot of the small uh, vineyards around. And I think kind of wine tourism is becoming more important. I was fortunate enough to be given a, uh, a voucher for my birthday uh, two or three weeks ago to go to Denby's uh, for a food and wine tasting experience uh, it, it happened to be a glorious day so it was a great time to to see it and uh, but i understand that most of over 60 percent of their wine are, is actually sold through their own premises there or direct shall i say uh through their own sources it, it's almost like a wine theme park because uh, there's more than one reason to go to denby's uh, for the shop or various other activities they've got a hotel on site so so for ian i I guess your only route is to is to sell direct, isn't it? Uh, no, we'll we'll we're certainly selling direct to uh, to start off with, and we're probably slightly unusual um, with the size of vineyard that we've got. We've actually got seven varieties of uh, of, of of vines. Uh, normally, a vineyard of our size will just do the traditional sparkling, the Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier, and Chardonnay. But we just decided to go a little bit more uh, crazy and uh, add Savar Blanc, Pinot Blanc and uh, Pinot Picross to, to that list to give us a lot of choice of what we wanted to do. So our first wine that we made uh, last year was a, a Bacchus Savar Blanc blend, which is quite unusual. Um, but that is something um, it's enriching the Bacchus a little bit. It's putting a little bit of character into what is otherwise a um, a very uh enthusiastic and energetic wine and we just wanted to calm it down just a little bit and give it a little bit of something different um and so what 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 our plan is once we're uh, we're embarking on building our our own winery and it will be that tourism type aspect even on a vineyard that are of our size that is very important and it's how we can manage that that will allow us to hopefully make a a little bit of money from uh, from what we're doing um rather than um spending a lot and um not uh, not not been on the right side of the uh, the profit and loss account but that's uh, we knew that before we went into it um it's uh, it is certainly harder than uh, than one expects but the, there are lots of opportunities out there because of the quality of wine that's uh, that is being produced and the recognition that um, the English and Welsh wine is good, um, which is again really exciting. Where, where Chris are the, the the most popular wine growing areas? I think we know of them through Surrey and and Sussex and and so on. But um, is it a fairly widespread uh, activity coming coming on? I know there are several vineyards in Wales, for instance. Where is best for wine growing in the UK? Well, in the south, I think the um main counties are Sussex, Kent and Hampshire. But, um, you know, Essex is producing some really uh, good still wines and down in Kent as well. Um, you've got some good wine producers and in Wales. I mean, there are vineyards further north, but yeah, the main area and the main place where people are investing is uh, the southeast. Originally, people thought, oh, the, so the um, chalk soils around the downs were you know the desired location but you know in kent there are some producing it from clay soils really good uh, quality wines uh, okay and and ian um, just tell me about your vineyard jojo's vineyard um uh, it, it's it's around where you live how challenging was it to find the right site um, did, did you have several options 
No, no, we just had the one option. It was the only <laughs> one in the village. We didn't, uh, and because land doesn't come up uh, in the village for sale very often, so we uh, we bought it and didn't quite know what we were going to do with it. When when we did that, it was an opportunity to buy some land, and uh, we did, and uh, work out what we're going to do with it later. So, uh, around us, there's now within a sort of six mile radius, there's about ten or twelve vineyards. It was um, our, one of our neighbouring vineyards. They looked at 300 sites around the country and they soil tested 100 of those. And the report that was done back in um, 2013, 2014 by a number of um, uh, sort of wine experts and vineyard experts from around the world was saying that South Oxfordshire is going to be one of the, the leading lights and the leading areas of uh, within the UK for growing um, sparkling wine. Um, and so that was that was encouraging from our point of view that uh, somebody else had done all the research and we were able to uh, to work alongside that. And so I think there's there's regions of the country that are um, are, are improving dramatically. We're uh, we're 196 meters uh, above sea level. So that is slightly un, uh, unusual. It's one of the higher sites. Um, we're on the uh, we're, we have a slope and we we're, we're split between um, chalk and clay. We've got a nice healthy breeze that comes across the uh, the vineyard, uh, which is great from a disease management point of view. Um, blowing uh, blowing anything away, and we haven't got the humidity. A challenge when we're uh, when we're spraying, but you find your windows to uh, to do it. And so we 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 were quite in a way quite lucky that um, once we soil sampled and done all those usual things, um, that we had a site that was uh, was very suitable. And the the one thing that we did learn at the time. Um, which is becoming ever more evident now that um, frost is the biggest um, challenge to UK um, the viticulture sector. And uh, spring frosts, uh, late spring frosts in uh, in May, just as the vines are starting to grow as they're budding. Um, and there's so many sites across the country that would be able to grow um, grape vines. But the, the challenge is frost. They're frost um, <clears throat> susceptible. So there's, there's very little um, reason to plant uh, in there, regardless of the quality of soil. Because if you get frosted, you're going to get no crop. And so that is the, the unknown challenge that most newcomers into the industry aren't really aware of. We just think of climate change as being um, as temperatures rising, but with that we get the effect of, of frost, and uh, it will it will take out hundreds of, of hectares of really good growing um, viticulture land. Um, but as long as people don't plant there, they won't get caught out. Um, if they're not correctly advised and they plant and they continue to get frosts, it's a very expensive mistake. So that's that's one that is a uh, is a real challenge. It's, uh, we've got there's a couple of vineyards in Scotland now, so um, yes, yeah. uh, it's it's interesting how it is changing um, from what it was, as Chris said, um, twenty years ago to where we are now. It's um, it is uh, it is very exciting, and the, we we at the moment we contract off contract uh, our our wine to. Uh, another another winemaker langham's in dorset and um in 2018 no 2021 20, i think it was they won the international sparkling winemaker of the year and uh, verve clico won it um the year before them and uh, langham's uh, maison mum were in the same competition as langham's and so that is evidence that what we're doing here in the uk is um is starting to be recognized as not just a sort of little upstarts um in producing the occasional good bottle of wine there's there's a number of um 
award-winning wines around the uh, around the country now and um that's that that is credit to the the expertise that is has developed from Plumpton and from around the world that has come to the UK as a challenging country to grow wine um and uh, we're we're being rewarded with that ex, uh, expertise in 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 what they're doing and that is i think that's really exciting um that uh, that we're being looked at as 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 to be we need to be taken seriously and i i view where the uk viticulture sector is now as where new zealand was 30 years ago um in the same sort of volume but has great potential and so i think we're going to see a huge change anywhere from the midland south with the amount of land that is going to go into um into vines and as chris said um over in essex um the crouch valley is becoming is one of the up-and-coming areas um as 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 well as around here um in in south oxfordshire but there's this potential all over the country as long as we can avoid frost and and chris what's been your experience uh, this year in your in your harvest travels uh, with with the weather it's been particularly hot uh, particularly during the summer in in mainland europe uh, how has the weather impacted on on wine growing throughout the various vineyards that you visited well every winemaker that i met in central and eastern europe they just said it was a challenging year because you had the really hot um weather in the summer heat waves and then september there was actually quite wet um which causes problems with disease and you know a lot of the grapes weren't as healthy as i like as i would have liked but one thing i did learn was there's a new um type of grape called peewee which are fungal um, or disease-resistant grape varieties. They've been created. They're sort of like 99% typical grape, but 1% now of um, a hybrid variety that gives them this disease resistance. And even in this challenging year, the grapes I worked with, they only needed one spray for the whole year. So I think, you know, that's something for the future with people becoming more concerned about spraying and chemicals. So I was impressed with the quality of those. It's the first time I'd really encountered them and worked with them. And, um, yeah, I'm quite hopeful of the wine from them um, will be special. <laughs> special. <laughs> I tasted it last week and, and it seemed good. It's sort of a, an amber wine, yeah. sort of um, a white wine made in red wine style. Ian, you've been involved over the past few years, I understand, in a number of sort of precision agriculture projects and so on. And now you, you're engaged in precision viticulture, um, and you're doing a number of projects with, uh, with the support of, of Innovate and AgriEpi and so on. Just, just tell me about the use of, uh, of drones and data gathering and robots uh, on your, on your vineyard at the moment. Yeah, we're at the at the early stage of uh, digitising um, the vineyard. We've we know the um, uh, GPS location of every post and every vine um, to RTK accuracy. And for me, we're we're wanting to establish the uh, the road network up and down the vines. And it sounds obvious that it should be there, but it is there. But without the GPS points, when we got it planted, we put all of that in, and we've got uh, a couple of robot companies just trying. Um, to navigate their way around the vineyard um, and it's okay to, to navigate on a, a on a leisure uh, in, a, in a leisure way where 
you're not wanting to commercialize it. But if you're wanting to commercialize it, then it has to be efficient and effective for that robot to uh, to work up and down the rows and navigate um, in, in and around the vineyard, different varieties and different blocks. So we're getting that established. And uh, what interests me most is uh, is the cameras that they're carrying and what they're going to be able to identify during the growing year, any time from bud burst all the way through to ripeness and through flowering and then to uh, to, to picking. And, uh, these, are, uh, these are GoPro cameras, aren't they? There's one, one of them's a GoPro camera. Um, there's uh, there's another there's a, another couple that we've got uh, uh, based on lidar and uh, high, high resolution imagery, and uh, they're gathering the data. And then they've got the really smart guys and girls behind the scenes um, generating AI algorithms to be able to look at and identify and count what's going on. Um, and from from Jojo's point of view, we it, it's it's not too much of a problem to walk up and down every single row. Um, if you've got the time and there then then comes into the question, well, we're time poor on two hectares. So if you're going to a much bigger vineyard, then you're even more time poor. So can this technology, whether it be drone technology with uh, with cameras and on uh, on on robots, provide the the vineyard manager with any more information um, about what's going on? Yield forecasting, because that is that is a big challenge. And this year it. Um, it, it proved to be a challenge in both directions for us and, and Langham's. We were way below what we were forecast because we were hit by the drought. They were way over um, with their yield forecasting because they were slightly older than us. And if we're able to use technology to help that, it, um, it certainly helps the, uh, the, the winery to forecast and, and make sure they've got enough um, space, uh, tank space for all the juice that is being produced. And is can we look at disease management, disease monitoring and, and all of that sort of thing. But we've also got labor as well. If we're able to um, to use robots to to help um, take some of the menial tasks away, whether it be looking at, uh, at mowing or strimming um, in and around the vines, um, leaf stripping, canopy um, trimming, all of these jobs that um, we're, we're searching as every sector seems to be. Um, searching for skilled uh, skilled labour. Brexit has been a challenge um, from that perspective, and that 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 won't be a different story to uh, to anybody else, uh, any other sector. And, indeed, and and Chris, we know about the labour issues in in the UK. Is that the same in the areas of mainland Europe? You, you went, and, and are they uh, using any kind of uh, technology to in, increase the, the yields? It's not so much of a problem, obviously, because with they haven't got the the Brexit issues. Um, the ones I work with a lot of family farms, so they get their neighbours and friends to come and harvest for them and to prune. Um, I didn't notice it there, but I know with the the bigger suppliers, they are looking for ways to save money and mechanising some of the more laborious tasks like harvesting or pruning. Um, you know, in the long run, it's going to save them money. You know, in Champagne, they're investing quite heavily in these um, big robotic tractors that are, you know, um, do everything themselves. And the vineyard manager can sit in his warm office and direct it. It can go out all times of day, um, which is obviously handy uh, for harvesting because you can actually pick at night when the grapes are nice and cold. In areas where labour isn't a problem, there is still an interest in mechanisation and robots and 
high tech um, vineyards, digital vineyards. I think it's just, it's just it's just an evolution of where we were. You don't want to lose the traditional skills that um, vineyard managers and winemakers have. You just modernize it where appropriate. And uh, the last couple of days I've been at um, the uh, Argentinian embassy in the House of Commons with a delegation of uh, wine growers from Mendoza, as it as it happens. And we were talking about ag tech and they were going, yeah, we it's not something that we really want to do, but we know we have to do. And how can we embrace it properly? And uh, it, it was it was fascinating listening to them because they were saying very similar to what uh, what Chris was. It's um, yeah, it's it's there. We've got to do something uh, uh, how can we embrace it? Uh, and Ian, how, going right back to the beginning when you when you started, how difficult and critical and accessible is uh, presumably getting the posts and the wiring right and the spacing right is it is is critical to the long term future? Is it? Uh, it's it is. It certainly helps. When we had ours planted, they were all planted with uh, with RTK GPS, and I was expecting to be able to take the USB stick out of the monitor with all the vines, uh, know the position of all the vines. And when I asked for that USB stick, the uh, the operator and the contractor looked at me as I was from Mars, uh, <laughs> going, "You want? why do you want that? What value is there to you for, for that information? And that's uh, sort of what start, started me um, on this journey of digitizing the vineyard, because in broadacre agriculture, we take the crop off every year, and we can plant a different crop in that in that field, and we um, have a, have an understanding of what's going on. Whereas in a vineyard, we've got a crop that's in the same place for the next thirty or forty years, and um, it's uh, it's the weather that changes, the conditions that change, but we have basically got the same crop in the same place, and uh, it gives us a wonderful opportunity to be able to do um, a, lot, a, a great deal of in depth work in and around that on, on, a, on a product that is slightly different um, in, in concepts to a number of others. It has value. It has an emotion to, to wine like no other. And what we're looking to do here is how can we um, educate, communicate and inform our customers and, and others about the winemaking process in the vineyard and in the winery using technology. So how can we use technology to help us grow and develop our business, um, deriving an income from sales of the digital technology and in, information that we can then feed back into, uh, into the vineyard to improve the quality of our product. So we're trying to turn the model around. Um, and if we can do it, uh, it will be one of the first sectors that is able to do that. And I think a lot of that is to do with the product that we have. But uh, it may well be able to filter down to other sectors afterwards. What was the biggest challenge that you faced um, that was within your control? Weather is not in your control. Um, but what was the biggest challenge you faced really in setting up the vineyard in? Knowing what varieties we wanted to plant and knowing what we wanted to do with the grapes um, three years ahead or three years after we planted. Did we want to follow everybody else in doing the three varieties? Did we want to do something that was probably going to cost us a little bit more, but have the opportunity to make um, different styles and different types of wine? So we can do um, still sparkling rosé, white and rosé, and we could also do a little bit of red as well. And so we've got a lot of variety in our vineyard. And that was, it was, that was the hardest part of working out what we wanted to do when we didn't really know what we were doing. We were advised by um, a neighboring vineyard who, who helps us because you, you have to have that expertise. But it was trying to plan ahead 
when you didn't really quite know what was uh, what was happening and what was going to happen in the future. And uh, sometimes we think we got it absolutely bang on, and other times we think we uh, we got it wrong. But when we uh, when we tasted our first bottle of of Bacchus earlier in the year, because um, we thought we planted too much still wine, and we thought we, after our first mouthful, um, we went actually, I'm glad we planted <laughs> uh, planted that. So all, yeah. uh, all all was forgiven of the nervousness that we had. But uh, there was it was the planning that was the the hardest part. Chris, um, I think we would acknowledge that, that British wine is still something of a niche product, particularly in terms of the pricing. Most of the British wine is is, is premium price, shall I say, um, and and not yet for the mass market, which one might say is sort of eight, nine, sub ten pounds. Do, do you see that changing? Um, we still haven't got the the quantities. I mean, even the predictions that I've seen. So at the moment. In a good year, I think it was between eight and ten million bottles a year, and the prediction over the next twenty-five years is that we could get up to forty million. But if you look at Champagne, they export one hundred and eighty million, and they produce like three hundred and twenty-two million bottles. So we're only ever going to be a small player. But I think you know this is an important market because we do import and consume a lot of wine. We're one of the, the leading um, importers of wine. So to have, um, you know, quality wine production at home, I think is going to benefit the whole market. And even if it is a niche, you know, there is a place for that niche. And I hope we continue to go along the quality route, even with all these new coming, newcomers coming in and, and planting vineyards. I hope they don't, you know, chase the buck and, and they, you know, go after the premium uh, quality products. In, indeed. And I must say my um, purchases from Denby's um, included red wine, and I was most impressed with the quality uh, because I don't associate the UK with producing red wine too much. Do you see that uh, that that changing at any time soon, uh, Chris, first? Yeah, no, I think I've tasted some really good um, red wines made from Pinot Noir, from um, Gusborne and Chapel Down in particular. Yeah. Um, and there is a hybrid variety called Divico, which I think people are talking about could be uh, a good one for the British market. Um, I haven't tasted it yet, but I know people are planting these type of varieties, um, you know, that could go well and uh, produce something different for the UK. And what about you, Ian? I mean, you're you, you're wedded at the moment to, to still white wine. Is is the next step sparkling, and is red on the agenda? Uh, yes, we've uh, we've got seventeen hundred bottles of um, of our still um, that is available now. We've got three and a half thousand of the sparkling, which is laid down. We'll um, be able to get access to that in twenty twenty four once it's gone through its second fermentation. Um, we could do. Um, uh, Tommy um, Grimshaw from Langham's, um, who makes uh, ours with uh, with Andy Wiles down there as the assistant winemaker. They they've looked at uh, we could do some red wine um, this year, just a few bottles, um, just for us. So that was in the in the first year, but but certainly English Pinot Noir um, has got great potential um, in the uh, in the future, and uh, I think that's only going yeah going to, going to increase. And there's variations on that, and I think it'll be. It's, it's going to be slightly different to uh, other other Pinot Noirs because of where we are. And uh, I certainly, I, I hope as a producer that it stays as a premium product. 
I don't think, just as Chris said, we don't need to drive the price down for this. There are, um, from a bottle perspective, canned wine is becoming increasingly popular at a younger age. So it's been it's the same product in a different package. And uh, we've been been looking at um, packaging cardboard um, bottles, uh, as I was introduced to yesterday, which are attracting interest from from a younger generation. So I don't think we need to drive the price down on the traditional product that we have. There's there's no need, um, and the market uh, will allow for that. I think other products will come along and other styles will come along that will fit in uh, in, in in that market and. Um, when when we look at the UK sector, um, when we see French um, vineyards and uh, winery, um, French houses coming to the UK and buying land over here, Pomery have been here for a while, Tattinger have been here for a while, and others are are looking around. I think that's that's a credit to the winemakers and the vineyard managers here making such a good product that these big organisations from around the world are considering the uk as whilst it's a niche player it's a it's a good niche player and i think that's encouraging um the the industry to maintain quality um that will come with the price point but there's there's lots of uh, there's lots of wine that fulfills the lower um tier of the price point and why do we need to go down to that let's aspire for quality and allow people to enjoy it and the the thing that surprised probably surprised me more than anything Um, pleasantly surprised me more than anything is when people have had our wine or any other English wine it is the general reaction is wow that is really nice and it's the it's the surprise on people's faces and their reaction that the English wine now is much better than it was 15 years ago when their first experience may have been there and the novelty factor was there but there's a 20 years ago you were hard pushed to find a good English wine Whereas now you're hard pushed to find a bad one because of the expertise and the quality of um, of winemakers and, uh, and 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 vineyard managers that are are now in the sector. Um, it's 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 a wonderful wonderful industry to be in because it's it's wonderfully positive to produce such a high quality um, product. And I'm presuming you'd agree with that, uh, Chris. The quality is, is going up all the time. Yeah, no, I think we are respected for uh, sparkling wines. And I think the steel wines, the reds and the whites from Pinot Noir and Chardonnay um, will gain recognition in the coming years. Uh, and, and they've already won awards, as, as Ian mentioned uh, previously, and about the French and houses coming over here. Uh, do you see that increasing as well? Will there be more interest in, in winemakers from mainland Europe coming into the UK, buying up uh, land? Yeah, and from other countries, um, uh, South Africa, uh, the Man in Seath belongs to um, South African uh, winery. Um, I think, yeah, there will be interest in uh, England from producers from all over who are looking for good quality land and soil and climate. And what we've got where um, other countries are struggling, we can get the refreshing acidity because of our cool climate. So that is highly sought after at the moment. Ian, how important do you think viticulture can become in the, shall I say, the agricultural firmament? I, I, it's, it's never going to be a, a, a huge part 
of the agricultural landscape just because of the way that it is. But I think whoever gets into it, um, it will be an essential part of, uh, of of their business. If it's done right, you have to do it right. You can't. It's very difficult to take shortcuts. I think the the support from the dealer network, I think, is going to be essential with that. Um, obviously, enthusiastic about the dealer network, and we've seen changes in the, the dealership networks to accommodate more viticulture. We've seen um, New Holland uh, harvesters. We've seen Palenque harvesters coming into the country. We're seeing better, um, a wider variety of viticulture machines coming in. So it's having having an impact wider than just on on a farm or on a bit of land. It's filtering out through the dealerships. It's through from a land agent point of view, an advisor point of view, an agronomist point of view. So it's having that usual agricultural ripple effect from the farm. And uh, that that's exciting as well, because it's bringing a new energy into that. And as I go right back to, to the very beginning of where we see um, family farms diversifying into viticulture rather than into other crops, I think that's incredibly exciting as well. And uh, we're, we're bringing a new uh, level and a new element of, of, of people into the business, which is uh, which is which is brilliant. And uh, that can only be good for all aspects of farming, because if one as uh, one part of the business is earning a good um, some some money, it's spent in the other. And if that can generate an income from tourism, from sales, whatever it may be, that's got to be positive for the whole of um, of agriculture and uh, UK PLC. Well, lastly, can I thank you both for your, your time today? It's been most unusual, most illuminating um, as a wine lover. I've, this is uh, one that I've had my, on my bucket list to try and address uh, for some time. So, um, uh, Chris, um, you, you've got plans for 2023 for more winemaking in Europe? Yeah, I'm hoping to do some in uh, Spain, Italy and the Ukraine. <laughs> well, oh, excellent. That, that sounds good. And, and, and Ian... Um, what what's your five year plan? I mean, you you've got the the initial uh, nine thousand vines that you've printed, you've you planted. Is there expansion plans at all? No, no, we've only got our nine acres. We can't expand any further from from our perspective. Uh, from a number of vines, we'll be putting in our winery and uh, and tasting room so we can do it all on site, and just uh, to increase that um, that tourism that experience. Um, within the uh, within the vineyard um, and within the space that we've got and uh, yeah digitize it where we can and um, look at how we can share what we've got with um, with customers in a in a new digital way and uh, we'll be looking to have a a new product um, digital product launching next year where we can take the vineyard to uh, to the masses and so if we can do that over the next five years then i'll be very happy well, look, Chris, Ian, thank you ever so much for for this uh, run through the, the, the wine industry and particularly the, the UK wine industry. It's been fascinating. And I, I wish you well with your travels and, and writing, uh, Chris, and, and obviously the future production, uh, Ian. And um, I hope it all goes splendidly well. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. So huge thanks to Chris and Ian for providing a fascinating insight into the UK wine industry. And many dealers are now looking at this market, providing specialist machinery and equipment, along with the application of precision agriculture, drones, robots and sophisticated crop identification technology. And of course, there is also the attraction 
of a most enjoyable product post-harvest. Now you will find links to Ian's and Jojo's Vineyard, to Chris's Wine Diary and indeed to Denby's Vineyard in the show notes to this episode. So I'm Chris Biddle, thank you for joining me and this is Inside AgriTurf. <laughs>